Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. It is episode 244. We're recording this live on May the 5th. Be with you. Wait, no. Revenge of the Fifth. I messed it up in the intro. Great. 2022. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined across the way from uh, Mr. Barry Kirby. Good evening. And how are you? I'm 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 really upset that I messed up that uh, <laughs> that reference. May the fifth do with you doesn't quite work. We got a great show for you all tonight. We'll be talking about uh, humanity's broken risk perception and how it's reversing global progress in what the UN is calling a spiral of self-destruction. And later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about being lowballed in compensation from internship opportunities, what to do if you're not enjoying your new role after making the transition into the field, and how to address the feeling of hitting a plateau. But first, we got some programming notes and a community update here. Just want to say from the Human Factors side of the house, we are going to have a little bit of a schedule programming uh, weirdness here. Next week will be a normal show. After that, uh, on the 19th, we're aiming to bring you some coverage from uh, the wonderful conference that Barry went to uh, last week. We're still kind of getting all that together for you, but we'll have kind of a tag team effort there. Uh, and then 26 will be on a short hiatus. Uh, and then we'll be back on the second, I think. Or wait, maybe maybe I just shifted all those down one. I think it's regular show 1219, then 26 will do that. Yes, that's what we did. I'm messing everything up tonight, Barry. It's almost like I should have made notes for this. But <laughs> all that being said, what's going on over at 1202? So 1202, talking about mess-ups, um, we were on a slight hiatus as well. Because of me not taking my cables to um, to EHF 2022, then we are pulling that. Um, the, the coverage that we expected to have, I didn't get. So we we backfilling that and we've got a whole bunch of interviews that we're mashing together what has that what that has meant is that we've got about a two-week break on actual interviews normal interviews um which we are um which, which we are sorting out there'll be more interviews coming up but i do implore you to go and have a um a listen to farming decision making and iot uh which was an interview we did with a um a local uh, local educational college, a farming um, educational college, and the project manager there, a chap called John Owen, uh, where they're looking at teaching students around the how people can use IoT to make their farms a lot more, um, a lot more, a uh, lot more useful, and um, and it really quite an, quite an interesting one. Slight dodgy sound quality, so just set that expectation up there, but really well worth going to and listen. Yeah. Well, anyway, we know why you're here. You're here for the news, so let's get into it. Yes, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. I hear we have a really uplifting topic tonight. Barry, what is the story this week? So our uplifting topic is humanity's broken risk perception is reversing global, global progress in a spiral of self-destruction, according to the UN. The world could undo social and economic advances and face one and a half disasters a day by the year 2030, according to the, to the UN's flagship global assessment report. Human activity and behavior is contributing to an, to an increasing number of disasters across the world, putting millions of lives and every social and economic gain in danger. The Global Access Global Assessment Report, released by the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, or the UNDRR, uh, reveals that between 350 and 500 medium to large scale disasters took place every year over the past two decades and is projected to reach approximately 560 a year, or one and a half disasters a day, by 2030. The report blames these disasters on a broken perception of risk based on um, optimism, underestimation, and invin invincibility, which leads to policy, finance, and development decisions that exacerbate existing vulnerabilities and put people in danger. The report found that the implementation of disaster risk reduction strategies had reduced both the number of people impacted and killed by disasters in the last decade, but the scale and intensity of disasters are increasing, with more people killed or affected by disasters in the last five years than in the previous five. The report was drafted by a group of experts from around the world as a reflection of the various areas of expertise required to understand and reduce complex risks. The good news says the head of the UNDRR, is that the human decisions are the largest contributors to disaster risk. So we have the power to substantially reduce the threats posed to humanity. 
and especially the most vulnerable among us. So, Nick, do you find this a bit of a risky topic? What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, my initial thoughts here, uh, when seeing this, when reading this, um, it's like, yes, this is this report is um, this report is quite detailed, and we'll go over these details uh, in detail. <laughs> but like, the, my first initial thought was, yikes! How do we how do we even like start to fix this? There's, you know, this this brought me back immediately to some of the stuff that um, you and I connected over early on with that climate ergonomics uh, from kind of taking the bottom up approach rather than the top down approach from policy perspective, and it's going to take all that to really fix some of this. And, and um, you know, there's some really sharp minds, Barry, uh, who are thinking about the climate ergonomics issue and how to really fix this. And um, that that's my initial thought is, how do we fix this? This is crazy. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm kind of the same. I mean, we've had, we've just had, well, in fact, you bought climate ergonomics. That is one really good example of where we think it's somebody else's problem all the time. And actually it's just something that, People are moaning about, and it doesn't actually affect us. But look at what happened during the pandemic. So, you know, normally we have an illness comes around, vaccines take a long time to get um, to get to get to the point where they're actually usable. You're talking like tens, if not hundreds of years. Yet, everybody expected that uh, when the pandemic happened, oh, it's it's bad, but um, it's all right. We'll have a vaccine soon. We'll have, you know. We'll we'll be fine. We'll let this disease rip through our communities, and, and it'll be everybody else that's um, that's at risk. I'll be fine. Therefore, we'll be fine. It won't touch me and my loved ones. Um, and it showed us just how wrong we were. I mean, the fact that we've still got it going on now in various formats, and we now just now just getting into that bit of well, we'll just have to carry on, won't we? We sort of have this idea that science and everything will will just solve everything and we can so and we can solve everything without you know there's nothing new in the world but actually that's just not true so there is definitely something here around um in that invincibility piece i think is um is put for me that that the biggest out of them three factors that were mentioned um yeah because we just think you know it, it it'll happen to somebody else and not me yeah so i, I guess want to go on yeah, I just want to mention that invincibility piece. The thumbnail for tonight's episode shows a guy flexing and says, don't do this um, because flexing invincibility. I don't know. Anyway, I feel like I had to explain that. But yes, I think you're right. Um, and the thing that I kind of want to talk about tonight in light of this dark article is um, really taking a look at risk perception, and what it means, not only from the individual perspective, but really thinking about societal uh, perspectives for risk perception too. And then I think maybe later we can talk a little bit about um, some of the sort of self-destructive behaviors that we're all engaging in and kind of how that, again, individual versus society, uh, we we kind of know what they are, but thinking about them from this perspective, we really get under the hood here of the psychology. And then we'll kind of bring it back to the article. Um, let's start with risk perception. Um do you want to kind of give everybody an overview of what risk perception is? Yeah. So risk perception, when we're talking about it in, in this context, is um, is really based on the, the study of, of this, arose out the observation that experts and lay people often disagreed um, about how risky uh, various technologies and natural hazards um, were. So a key paper was written in 1969 by Chauncey Starr, and Starr used it a revealed preference approach to find out what risks are considered acceptable by society. He assumed that society had reached equilibrium in its judgment of risks. So whatever the risk levels actually existed in society, they obviously were acceptable. His major finding was that people will accept risks a thousand times greater if they are voluntary, i.e. driving a car, that type of thing, than they are involuntary, i.e. a nuclear disaster. So that is that is that basic element of it. Do you want to talk about really uh, around the psychological approach of this? Yeah, I want to talk briefly on that point, though. Uh, except risks a thousand times greater if they are voluntary. Is engaging in non-pro-social behavior, so you know, not not recycling, um, is that a voluntary action uh, versus an involuntary thing of being subject to? A climate disaster, uh, or or somebody else's actions, right, contributing to a climate disaster. I just want to comment on that because you have kind of two examples there, but this 
situation of us collectively com- uh, contributing to something um, that is impacting all of us. How does our risk perception fall in to that category? That's what I kind of want to peel back here. So let's talk about the psychological approach here. When we talk about the psychological approach of risk perception, we're really trying to understand how people sort of process this information um, about risk, right? There, We talked about heuristics not last week, but two weeks ago when we talked about uh, consumer products and reviews. Go listen to that episode if you want to kind of refresh her on some re, uh, some of these heuristics, because, again, we talked about them there. We'll talk a little bit about them in context of risk perception a little later. But, again, that's kind of where you want to listen for that. Obviously, these heuristics are um, when when you sort and simplify this information, it leads to biases in your comprehension of this risk. And there's a lot of different factors that are responsible for influencing these perceptions of risk, right, including things, feelings like dread, novelty, stigma, and other factors. And so if you really break down the risk perceptions factors, there's cognitive factors, affective factors, contextual factors, and individual factors as well. We'll kind of go through some of them, um, but really they're all sort of just attributes about uh, the risk, right? So like gravity of events or how much media coverage something is getting. Those might be cognitive factors. You might have emotions and feelings that play into affective factors or um, the framing of information or availability of information from other sources. That might be another contextual thing that you might want to look at. And then individual factors. So personality traits, age, gender, those typical ones. Um, When thinking about sort of the psychological approach, there's, you know, research that suggests that risk perceptions are influenced by the emotional state of the perceiver. I always, I already mentioned some of those affective factors and kind of overall risk and benefit tend to be positively correlated across activities in the world, but are negatively correlated in people's minds and judgments. And so um, when you think about sort of the benefit of engaging in something risky from um, with a hazardous activity in the world, i.e. not recycling, um, that that correlation is more positive when you recycle, you do better versus people's minds and judgments, sort of the in, uh, impersonal or interpersonal, I guess, uh, example. You want to talk about heuristics and biases a little bit? Because I mentioned them. Yeah, so obviously to, to do this in detail, go back, what, what do we say, two episodes, and, and we go about these um, in a whole lot of detail around different heuristics. But to just to go over um, them briefly. Um, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with heuristics and biases, the earliest research is done by psychologists who performed series of gambling experiments to see how people evaluated probabilities. And the point of this was they found a number of people used heuristics to evaluate information. So what they are were, what, what you, heuristics are, are useful shortcuts for thinking. So, but you might get um, inaccurate or biased uh, judgments in some situations in which case they become cognitive biases. So a few that we want to pick up, we won't go over them in detail. Like I said, we've done that, done that before, but in some of your biases, so if you have uh, representativeness, which is you usually employ that when people are asked to judge the probability of an object uh, that or an event will come, will, will come to pass. And really one of the things around this is that um, people become insensitive to predictability. So when we're talking about risk, um, then their insensitivity to predictability means that their um, their engagement with risk will be different. Um, we also have this idea of anchoring an adjustment. So people often start with one piece of known information and then adjust it to create an estimate of an unknown risk. But you might not have um, the, the things that... Um, to make that adjustment we won't be big enough. So you might not give it sufficient adju- uh, adjustment. And the biases in your evaluation of the um, conjunctive and distru- disjunctive event um, will, uh, will will force you to um, be- make a wrong, uh, wrong assessment. And then the anchoring of the assessment um, of subjectivity pro- probability distributions means that it you if with this in terms of risk you'll place it in the in the wrong area so the when we're using heuristics and bring them into into the use of risk then we've got to be really almost doubly aware of the methods that we are using to make that assessment and how fallible that can be to um to to be wrong so with that 
um, heuristics piece over over done um, with. Do you want to take us into uh, the cognitive psychology element of it? Yeah, I want to talk about a couple other sort of uh, aspects here with heuristics, right? So one thing that we didn't talk about a couple weeks ago here was this asymmetry between gains and losses. And, and really, um, this is kind of a, a bias type of thing uh, rather than a heuristic. But you're, you're really looking at sort of these um, like gambling behaviors, right? And, and you can kind of think about the climate as sort of one of these behaviors where you're engaging in something that's really going to affect you in serious ways. And so people are risk averse with respect to gains. So they, they want to prefer a sure thing over a gamble with a higher expected utility. And when we talk about that, it's um, perhaps something that's more valuable to them, right? They, they want the sure thing over the thing that you could potentially have a higher value to. But you uh, also with that higher value thing, you have the opportunity to get nothing. So it's like it's the all or nothing, but I'd rather take the sum than the some little thing versus the some big thing at a chance. And so when you think about that in terms of our self-destructive tendencies in the environment, we really do want an all in one solution. It's not going to happen that way. It's like, mm. um, you know, the, the end goal here is to get, you know, to the, the baseline level of disasters per year. But really when we talk about it, the goal is to get anything less than 1.5 disaster. So if we get 1.4, we've still done something to improve that situation and the risk is that we don't get back to the baseline. But we still got to try. And so I, I just find that fascinating. You know, there the there's the other flip side of it where people are risk seeking about losses. So preferring that they prefer the chance of losing nothing rather than taking a sure but smaller loss. So this is something like insurance, right? Um and I, when, when you think about the loss of like, I don't know, environment, life, things like that, when you're, when you're risk seeking, right, you're, you're hoping for the chance of losing nothing. That means you hope that everything will go the way that you hope it'll go. Everything will kind of stay the way it is. It's not going to happen that way because we're on a trajectory of, of uh, the self-destruction. And so we're hoping and and because of that, we're losing. Um, there's also threshold effects that I want to talk about really quick and biases. You also have sort of this um, people prefer to move from uncertainty to certainty over making a gain in certainty it doesn't lead to full certainty. So um, trying to slowly understand how we can better this process of saving the environment. Right. So an example, right. People would rather choose a vaccine. You brought up vaccines earlier that reduces the incidence of disease a from 10% to 0% over one that reduces uh, the, dis the disease B from 20% to 10%. And that's kind of what I'm talking about there. When we look at the environment, when we look at sort of um, the effectiveness of the way that we implement things, is it not worth trying the thing that's going to reduce the number of disasters from 1.5 to 1.4 versus the thing that's going to, you know, do 1.5 to 1.0? Mm -hmm. I think that's that's what we're looking at right there, right? So, I mean, thinking about those threshold effects, um, I'll let you talk about cognitive psychology because I kind of took the second half of heuristics and biases there. Well, it would have helped if I hadn't, like, actually just forgotten to talk about it. So, the... Um... So yeah, in terms of cognitive psychology, the the majority of people in the uh, in in the public express a greater concern uh, for problems which appear to possess an immediate effect on everyday life, such as hazardous waste or pesticide, rather than longer term problems that may affect future generations, such as climate change and population growth. Exactly what we've been talking about with climate ergonomics and and why we want to uh, to make an impact with it in that way. So people rely greatly on the scientific community to assess the threat of environmental problems because they usually do not directly experience the effects of the phenomena such as climate change. And another good example of this is such as like, is air pollution, where you, you struggle to see actual air pollution itself. So you rely on experts to tell you what the air pollution levels are. And then it's only when you get there and you're like, oh, actually, oh, so that is bad because, you know, you generally, unless it's smog, you don't really see air pollution. So you're relying on somebody else to, to tell you about it. The exposure most people have to climate change has been impersonal. 
most people have only had a virtual uh, a virtual experience through documentaries and news media. It won't may seem like a, a remote area of the world, so it doesn't naturally um, a- apply to them. However, coupled with the population's wait and see attitude, people do not, people do not understand the importance of changing environmentally destructive behaviours, even when experts provided detailed and clear risks caused by climate change. Which is absolutely right, and that just follows all the research that we've just happens to be that we've just published. Um, there is another bit onto that which I would throw in there, in that people need to have a path, uh, people need a guide on what they can do, um, because if if the target is seen as too big, um, and they can't, there's no direct line from their action to solving the target, then there's also a um, a block a blocker there as well. Um, so be you know you doing your day to day recycling and the climate change being kept within two percent, uh, sorry the, the climate te- temperature being kept kept within two two percent of uh, two degrees of where we're at, um, you know you you there's no direct link there, there's no causation in there. Psychometric paradigm. Would you like yeah. to go into some psychometric paradigm? Yeah, I mean that last point that you made is just like how do we fix this right? Like you you did kind of break it down a little bit. We need to make it manageable chunks and mm-hmm. directly link it, right? So we're already getting to some of the solutions and I like that. So let's let's talk about the psychometric paradigm. So this really focuses on sort of the roles of um, affect, emotion, stigma when influencing risk perception. So again, thinking about how we think, feel, and perceive uh, climate change in this example here, people generally see most risks in society as being unacceptably high, i.e. the climate is changing, it is getting uh, too out of control. We're, we're seeing too many disasters. This is unacceptable. Uh, all things being equal, the greater the people perceive a benefit, the greater the tolerance for a risk. So let's say there's, um, I don't know, some new technology that comes around and could potentially uh, harm people because it's, I don't know, taking carbon emissions out of the air. And, and it's, I don't I, I'm trying to think of a scenario here. But basically, when you think about that, it, it could save Right. It's the it's the perceived risk to be able to save. You have a risky technology that could reduce it down to 1.0 instead of a less risky that'll reduce it from 1.5 to 1.4. Go ahead. A a good example of this at the moment actually is our electric vehicles. Um, So people use electric vehicles or are using electric vehicles um, to because they perceive that that they are better for for the environment. Um, And, you know, but then one of the the locked in issues that we've got at the moment is the battery technology and the lithium right. batteries. Um, how are we going to recycle them lithium batteries? We don't know yet. All we know is that we're going to store them. And at some point, we expect to develop technology to to recycle that, that lithium so it's it's not that bad. And we'll, it, we'll get different battery technologies. But right now, we are happy to take that risk because we do, we derive pleasure from using our electric vehicle We because, well, it would be if it would arrive. Um, the you know, we, we we want to use the electric vehicle because that we've been told that that helps the environment, um, and that's good. And therefore, we feel we get all that self um, that self fulfillment, uh, all, all that good be all that good behavior stuff. But we are putting aside a risk at the moment that we um, that we're happy to take because we think it's a problem that will be solved down the line. We have a lot of um, we we basically biased to that because uh, because experts have told us it'll be solved. Yeah. Well, so so thinking about risk perception in psychometric. Uh, paradigm specifically, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at sort of this highly dependent on uh, intuition, experimental thinking, emotions. Again, we're, we're looking at sort of the way we think, feel and perceive things. And when, when you look at sort of this broad domain of characteristics, there's sort of these three high order uh, categories um, in which we think about risk, right? The degree to which a risk is understood, the degree to which it evokes a feeling of dread, and the number of people exposed to the risk. So thinking about climate change, how well do we understand that problem? How how, how bad do we feel about it? I know, you know, my wife and I have had multiple conversations about, like, do we bring another child into this world if we know that, uh, what kind of world are we bringing them into? And then, uh, really dread. And then the number of people exposed to the risk. Well, it's everybody in the world. Um, and so that's really high. <laughs> so, you know, th- these, uh, these, this dread risk, when we talk about dread risks, these are things that are eliciting visceral feelings of terror, uncontrollable catastrophe, inequality, uh, uncontrolled 
type. Those are the, the emotions that we're talking about. And I certainly think that climate change fits that bill for a lot of people. Um, and the more a person kind of dreads an activity, the higher that's perceived risk and the more that that person wants that risk reduced. And so that is one sort of um, glimmer of hope in all this is that the more that we collectively as a society feel that this climate disaster, this climate uh, change is, in fact, something that we dread, feeling mm -hmm. of terror, uncontrollable, catastrophe. I think we will start to think that we need to do something more and more. But when is that point of where it gets too late, right? It's a glimmer of hope, but is it too late? I don't think so. It, we have to live with something. You know, we have to live with some of these effects, but can we reduce it over time? Maybe. I don't know. Let's talk about culture. So yeah, so culture, cultural theory in, in terms of risk is is really interesting because in cultural theory, there's four ways of life. If you think about that in a group or a, a grid arrangement, each way of life corresponds to a specific social structure and a particular outlook on, on risk. Uh, so the grid categorizes to the degree which people are constrained and um, circumscribed in their social role. The tighter binding of the social constraints limits the individual negotiation. The group refers to the extent to which individuals are bounded by feelings of belonging of so or solidarity, as I guess we call it. The greater the bonds, the less the individual choice are subject to personal control. So these four ways of life include hierarchical, individualist, egalitarian, and fatalist. So if you imagine that as a grid, the depending on um, where you're at and within it, you you're bound by the community you're bound by the i guess the, the, them social constructs to almost go along with things or you know depending on how you fit within that you might find, find yourself even though you might push against what's going on going along with them for the sake of it um some of this comes up really uh quite strongly in in project management when you're doing project management risk assessment um because you take you know we, we use there is a different adaption of, of of this cultural theory grid which you use to assess your risk appetite and this is we use that and i find it really interesting culturally we then normalize the risk we talk about ri the risk as an objective thing because then we monetize it so um so that's for me that, that that's quite interesting and it, it's one particular culture that we we play with it there's also been a, na a national culture and risk survey so the first National Culture and Risk Survey of, of Cultural uh, Cognition found that a person's worldview on the two social and cultural dimensions of high, hierarchy, egalitarianism, and individualism, so, uh, solid, solidarism, <laughs> it's been a long day, <laughs> uh, solidarism, was uh, predictive of their response to risk. So that's really, really quite interesting. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, there is um, survey stuff out there that, that backs up this thinking. So do you want to talk about the social implication of risk framework? Yeah, so this is a framework through the social amplification side of things. So thinking about society as a culture, right? We're, we're, it, they're abbreviating this SARF, S-A-R-F. But this combines research from a bunch of different domains, psychology, sociology, anthropology, communications. Uh, and really, it's outlining how communications of risk events pass from the sender to the immediate stations of a receiver, and in the process, serve to amplify or attenuate uh, the, the perception of risk. In layman's terms, how do we communicate about risky things so that we engage less in risky behavior? So when we think about the environment, how are we uh, or, or any other media outlet communicating through um, these channels to people getting, getting the message across that your behaviors have these consequences, right? So Really, you're thinking about all these links in a communication chain, individuals, groups, media, they contain filters through which that information is sorted and understood. And so when, when you think about this framework, it, it attempts to explain the process by which risks are amplified after receiving public attention or attenuated, um, receiving less public attention. Uh, so, you know, all that being said, I think ultimately the the main thesis here is kind of that the the risk events that interact with individual psychological societal and other cultural factors in ways that increase or decrease sort of these public perceptions of risk um and so you know th there's ripple effects obviously when you think about the amplification of these messages um and these include like enduring mental perceptions uh so the way that we think about climate change it's slowly changing over time and we we need to match that um and so 
basically, um, you think about some of these in terms of seminal human factors, right? Training, uh, education, um, all that stuff. Uh, so, so long story short, basically some of these traditional risk analyses might neglect these ripple effects that, that some of these communication impacts have on it and really underestimate, underestimate the adverse effects from certain risk events. Um, and so you have sort of this public distortion of these risk signals. Um, and, and this will provide a corrective sort of mechanism so we can look at these problems, these risky behaviors in, in a, in a better light. Um, you know, I, we spent a lot of time on risk perception. I do want to make sure that we talk a little bit about self-destructive behavior. I think maybe, uh, we, we all kind of know what, uh, self-destructor, self-destructive behavior is. And in this case, we're specifically talking about contributing to an environmental disaster. <laughs> I mean, yes. Fairly substitute. You know, I, I'm I'm going to skip over a lot of this. We do we have come prepared with notes, but we are running late on time. So, I think the main point that we want to make about sort of um, self destructive behavior really is that you can diagnose it on the individual scale, but it's really difficult to sort of diagnose it on a global scale because some people are doing things, everything that they can to you know, contribute to a world in which they want to see, you know, th this, this 1.5 number come down. Um, and other people just don't either have awareness or don't care. And so it's, it's hard to diagnose it from a societal standpoint. And then there's obviously ways to test it from a, uh, an individual level, but then when you get to this, it doesn't scale. Right. Quite. Some of the outlook of, of these self-destructive behaviors obviously are um, risky, right? Self-destructive behaviors can increase the risk of yes. poor mental health. But um, you want to give this little glimmer of hope here What what uh, with the self-destructive yeah. behavior? I think you can fully recover from self-destructive behavior. So we know this from an indiv individual basis, and there is no reason at all why then we shouldn't think that that scales up. So you can re fully recover from it. How long it takes depends on a number of factors. So that includes the frequency and the severity of symptoms, whether you've had other conditions such as depression or PTSD, your specific self-destructive behavior, and whether it's linked to such things as say, alcohol and things, uh, or an eating disorder. And your outlook depends on your individual circumstances. So we know that therapy and medication can be effective in treating a variety of mental health disorders. Uh, and your doctor will be able will be able to give you an overview of what you can expect. But when we're talking about it in terms of society, then actually we put, we, we, we're talking about societal outlook. And so, but based on individual circumstances, because it is the sum of some of the parts. So there is clearly a, um, a lot of work here, but this does give us um, that bit of hope. I mean, fundamentally, um, self-destructive behavior is when you repeatedly do things that, that are going to harm you physically, mentally, or both. Um, and when we talk about this in terms of climate, then we are talking about the things that, that we can do or neglecting to do, um, such as recycling, such as planning, such as th that, that type of thing. Um, if, so if you think you're engaging in the self-destructive behavior in terms of, of disasters, well, you probably are. The fact that you think that you're doing it means that you, you're not that far away from it. So you don't have to be like that. You can, you can do, do things, do things differently. So if you find them new skills, then new coping skills and practice them, particularly practicing alternative behaviors, we can hopefully live a, a, a less self-destructive life. And that could be one of the key things to take us around things like climate change. Yeah, right. Like We can't medicate everybody. We can't give everybody therapy, but certainly thinking about practicing some of these coping skills and alternative behaviors to, you know, uh, uh, anti-social I say antisocial, but anti-environmental practices. Um, so let's let's get back to the article because uh, there's some really good points that they make in here. And I, I guess Barry, are, do you have any key takeaways that you want to make sure that we talk about before we get out of here? I know um, you know we're short on time, but I, I do yeah. want to take the time here to revisit. So what this the, there was a thing that this sort of echoed to me, and it's it's about how we how how we project risk and how we uh, communicate risk to the public. So we talked right, um, right, right at the top around how people's reactions to the pandemic, and how we thought that um, you know scientists will come up with a solution, and and as long as it's somebody else, 
the first time, and it won't be the first time it's happened, but the first time I think it happened in a big way was around the Millennium Bug. When for years, and you know, we, years people were talking around the Millennium Bug um, and and that happening. And then, you know, basically the engineering managed to solve it. So actually the, the repercussions were very small. And so then people suddenly started having that talk of, um, you know, it's clearly, yeah, everyone's going to say it's a disaster, but then the Millennium Bug was, was going to be a disaster and it didn't happen, did it? We expect disasters to happen. And when they're not, then we tend to then mock them. Whereas actually the Millennium Bug could have been a really big disaster. Lots of people recognized the risk. Lots of people did some really, really chunks of good, solid chunks of work to mitigate that risk um, because it wasn't solved. It was it was mitigated against. And I, I wonder whether that was the start of modern day um, risk apathy. Because um, that's kind of what this is talking about. It's, it's we we just uh, we we hear the risk, we we watch the news, we all get depressed about it, but then we become quite apathetic about it. So yeah, that's something I wanted to get across before um, yeah. before we run out of time on this. Well, well, that's that's quite depressing. I'm gonna live. I, I'm gonna leave us on a on a slightly more optimistic note. <laughs> oh, you do that, Gollum. Rather yep. than uh, apathetic uh, attitudes towards a climate disaster. Think about this: disasters can be prevented, um, and and this comes with. A, a slight warning obviously we need as as not only countries but as a world really to invest some of these time and resources to understand and reduce the risks that we're engaging in um and you know ultimately when we deliberately ignore risk and fail to integrate it into some of the decision making that we make daily the world is effectively bankrolling its own its own own destruction that is a quote by uh the head of the UNDRR, um, critical sectors from government to development and financial services must urgently rethink how they perceive and address disaster risk. So this is putting the onus on sort of these higher level functioning bodies of government, financial services, development, those types of things. But from an individual perspective, sort of the good news here is, again, we're going to restate this because it is kind of that glimmer of hope. Human decisions are the largest contributors to disaster risk. And so we have the power, if we understand humans, which psychologists, human factors, professionals do, we have the power to substantially reduce those threats posed to humanity and especially the most vulnerable among among us. So that's kind of where we want to end. Positive note, we can fix this, but we got to work at it. So let's do it. Thank you to our patrons uh, and everyone on social media this week for selecting our news topic. And thank you to our friends over at the United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to the original articles on our weekly roundups and our blog. You can also join us on our Discord for more discussion of these stories. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Uh, hey, did you know, as we're talking about ways to support the show, that we have a merch store. We have some really awesome designs over there. We're always updating them. Uh, we got It Depends shirts, if you want those. We got a show logo. Um, and there's other cool designs based in human factors culture. So if you want to support the show, look good doing it. I won't spend too much time on this. You can go support the, the store. Uh, you find it on our website or something. I don't know. Anyway, it's time we get into this next part of the show. We like to call. It came from. It came from. Yes, this part of the show is called. It came from. This is where we talk about. Uh, we find all these news stories all over the not news stories. I am messing up a lot tonight. That's okay, though. <laughs> we find 
topics that the community is talking about all over the internet. Uh, if you are listening, watching, wherever you're at, give us a like to help other people find this content. The first one we're going to be talking about tonight is actually uh, from our Discord. So this is uh, Am I Being Lowballed? This is by V in our Discord. Um, I'm taking out names. You can see the details in our Discord if you join us. But uh, I'm being offered a human factors and VR development internship for a government contractor on a government project. But the pay is only 15 to 20 at 20 hours a week, uh, 15 to 20 dollars at 20 dollars a week. As far as market value, I'm a first year grad student and a terminal master's. I have three years in undergraduate research with one being a self-led study on relevant themes. Another year of research uh, here out of the gate. Uh, two internships relating to user research and observational methods. Not a lot in VR development, but a, a, but a bit in VR research. Seems like a lowball, but I'm not a professional by any means. Am I being lowballed? Should I just accept it for the experience and the name? We're not going to say the name here on the show. Uh, again, you can go check that out in our Discord for the full conversation. Uh, Barry, what do you say to this? Is V getting lowballed? Yeah, so, in short... Yes, which is the official answer. Um, however, there is um, there's an element here about looking at the entire package because you've got to work out um, what is the internship there to do? Is it there to pay the bills? Um, which it's obviously got to do some of that. But as an intern, you're also looking at the the value of the experience that you're getting. So is the the contract that you're going to do or the company that you're going to go and work with, would having them on your CV give you sufficient experience, a sufficient, um, uh, you know, j just having a bit of uh, pizzazz or a bit of wow on your CV, is that what, what is the value of that to what you're doing? So I do believe that any sort of internship should, you know, pay the bills. Um, that type, that type of thing. For if you're going to be offered, then you should, it should be offered a decent wage. But it's a very personal decision as to, you know, dare I say, it depends on what you, um, you know, what do you think you're going to get out of it? Is it for, you know, is it long period, short period, whatever? So the official answer, yes, I think you're being lowballed. But is that worth it to you? I jokingly said take out a bunch of student loans uh, to pay for this because they're about to be forgiven, maybe. Um, and so that's probably the best advice. No, not really. Um, don't do that. Uh, that's a terrible advice. I would say we are not an independent financial advisor. Uh, <laughs> all loans are at your own risk. Look, this is a really interesting question because, um, it, yes, it, to me, it is a low ball. I mean, I got when I did my internship years ago. Uh, this is less than I got paid then. Um, and the, you're right. There is some things to consider that are outside of the money, but I do find it really icky when you think about companies saying you're getting paid an experience. I hate that. Um, and it's, it's the reason why in the lab I put no like hard requirements over it because I, you're volunteering your time. I don't want you to feel like you're getting paid an experience. I want you to get out what you put in. All that being said, um, what value do you put on the things that are not money related? Are you going to starve? Uh, first off, that's a pretty important question to answer. The other questions to answer are, who would you be working with? Would they be valuable connections in the future? How much is that worth to you? Um, I think that is a tremendous sort of amount of consideration should go into that. You know, the name, again, if it is a reputable uh, name, then that is also something to consider. Looks good on your resume. Fine. Again, paying for the experience at name, though, shouldn't really be. I don't know. I, I feel a little icky about that. The, the last sort of piece of the pie here is the topic that you're working on. Is this closely aligned to your goals um, long term? If yes, then I think it could be a good career step. Um, I'm actually talking to this person tomorrow, so hopefully some of these answers, I, it sounds like they're going to accept it. But um, anyway, I, I do want to mention that this question actually prompted Blake, you remember that guy, to enter the chat. Um, Blake? Yeah, I've heard you talk about him. I've never, I've never actually met him, so I have no idea who you're talking about. Yeah, that guy. He actually entered the chat. He, um, you know, he came out from the shadows to to answer this question. But I mean, there's a lot of good 
uh, sort of advice that he gave. Again, I'm going to plug our Discord. Go check out the full conversation there. We also just opened up a new channel for career advice. So if you do have any similar questions to this, I think that's a great place to ask these. Um, and again, based on the way that I'm handling this, we're going to say maybe what the topic is, but we'll leave out some certain details so you don't feel so called out in a public matter. Um, again, our Discord's quite intimate, so I don't think uh, I don't think that's a that's a problem. All right, uh, next one here is from the uh, user experience or UX research subreddit. This is by Mystery to Mystery to Me One Twenty. Not enjoying my new job. I'm new to UX. Transition from academia. Um, they said they made a career change. They were in a PhD program, enrolled in a boot camp, and landed a okay paying job in UX, which is supposed to be about 80% research, 20% design, and educating employees on best UX practices uh, like documentation. The issue is that their product really sucks. Like It's the most annoying product I've ever used in my life and haven't managed to understand 10% of it. Um, they got training on it. The trainer felt disrespectful uh scold students publicly shames them never explained any context or provided any presentation while teaching um on top of this feeling i'm feeling like only 20 percent of the job is research and 80 percent as they advertise since it's my first job i feel like i have to stick it out but i'm just looking for reassurance that this happens sometimes and any suggestions on how to accept a better role next time thanks barry how do you sort of do this when you've just transitioned to the field and you're getting met with all this stuff. First off, do you think their complaint is valid? And then second off, how do you, how do you approach this? So firstly, I think it is possible that they perhaps didn't do as much research into the future job as, so if this is their product and you know, it sucks, if it's their only product and you didn't pick that up, then maybe you should have done slightly more research into it, but they might have a range of products. So let's just, Go with that. Go with that. Uh, that assumption. Um, sometimes the hardest thing you can do is admit you you might have made a mistake for whatever reason. Um, but the sooner you can make that admission, the better it is, or at least come to peace. You know, come be at peace with it. So some people might argue that saying you know quitting a job uh, within a year is a bad thing. Because if you do that too many times, you have a really spotty CV, um, and and that's that's unhelpful for when you're looking at continuity. And there is that sort of advice that you know you should be trying to stick at a stick at a rule for at least a year to two years um, consistently to to have that. However, um, if you are in a role that you just don't like, that isn't bringing you joy to going to work with every day, um, then quite frankly make it it's it's a tough decision to make but but i would pull the ripcord i would um i would get out of it personally um and the sooner you can the better so it is up to you uh in terms of how you do it but i've i've been in sort of two situations uh one where i had somebody uh working for me in, in a different role who they were um going to be taken over from me and then they realized the 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 breadth and depth of work that they would be doing and and they made I, what I thought was a really brave decision to say, you know what, I think I've been off more than I can chew, or you you know you didn't necessarily tell me about the full breadth of what this role was going to be. Um, I don't think this is where I want to be. And actually, they left before I did. Um, and I thought that was a really brave, but the right move for them. Um, and then I've seen other people do sort of similar things. Um, I did it myself. I went in for um, a, a short project where they wanted to keep it on going on for longer, but I was like, actually, no, I've done what I can. I'm stopping. Um, and so I, whilst the you know we had money on the table and all that sort of stuff, I, I felt that um, the way that it was going wasn't where I wanted it to go. And so we amicably ended, um, or we, basically we didn't renew that contract um, because it just didn't feel right. And actually... That was about 10 years ago. Now I've, I've since been proven right, which is quite nice. Um, but yeah, so I, this is one of these things. I think you, my gut feel from the way that it's described, I will get out of there. What do you think, Nick? I don't know. I I find that a lot of the stuff that this person is describing is part of the enjoyment I get. If a product sucks, then like it's your job to fix it. It's your job to understand why. Like to me, it's a challenge. Um you know, and so I, I, yeah, again, I don't know where the expectation differences occurred. And this kind of highlights the importance of really understanding uh, what you're getting into before accepting a position. Um, so I, 
I don't know. I, I think the, the best question to ask is if it didn't exist before, what sort of things are they anticipating? Um, like, so if, the, if this position doesn't exist and you are sort of filling it for the first time, what are the expectations of everyone around you? If they, if they cited 80% research, then that's what they had in mind for you. And I'm just kind of wondering why you're at a 20% right now. Is that because there's some sort of blockage within the company that you need to break through to get to that 80%. I don't know. I just, I feel like I don't have all the pieces of the puzzle here. Um, just try your best to ask questions, understand what you're getting into and communicate effectively when you get into the role. Um, you're from academia. You always have that backup. If you don't like it, go back to what you know. Like that's kind of the nice thing about switching fields is you can always go back to that other thing. Right. I don't know. It's not great advice, but it's, uh, it's there. It's let's get in, Let's get into this last one here. Feeling like I've hit a plateau. I'm seven months in. Oh, sorry. This is by uh, Deftones 5554 on the UX research subreddit. I'm seven months into my first job as a UX UI designer at a marketing agency. Feel like I'm hitting a plateau. I'm the only UX person here on a design team of six. Before I got here, they didn't care much about research, but I've tried to change that. I'm the only researcher here. I'm trying to beef up our research process, but it seems impossible by myself. They go in to talk a little bit about details about what they do. And they say, this process I use feels like it's lacking a lot, but it's mostly just user interviews and testing. I've thought a lot about using other tools, but we just don't have the space in our timelines. Am I biting off more than I can chew with this job? Is this the best place for me so early on in my career? What I'm scared of, though, is that all this weird anecdotal work I've been working on super hard to display on my portfolio. Uh, uh, won't be displayed on my portfolio. I'm very proud of most of it. And I feel big companies will only want to hire people who started their career in a more traditional position at a company that trained them. Um, they're proud of themselves for the research process. Anyway, feedback, Barry, what's going on? Hitting the plateau. Yeah, I think this happens to everybody at some point or other. I mean, I've been there. I've, I've done that. And certainly being in my role at the moment in terms of running my own company, I certainly hit that quite often is how you're going to stretch yourself, how you're going to push yourself. Um, I think there's a certain element here that um, you, know, you haven't been, if I'm being, you haven't been there that long in the grand scheme of things. So, but it is hard. We sort of said this quite a lot, quite a few times before where you've been, um, you know, if you're that one person, um, that that's doing your role, it can feel quite um, quite a lonely place at times. So, I think if you want, to, if you think there is more stuff that that, that you can do, if there's different tools and things like that, bring it up. Talk to the rest of the team about it. Talk you talk to your um, um your, your manager about it, around you know what your ambitions are and can we develop the role in a way that you know allows you to express yourself in the way that you want to express yourself. Um, you said that you um the that you're you are worried about how it's got how you're gonna display it on your portfolio. Quite frankly, I for me that would be a secondary consideration at this point because the first thing you want to do is is good work. Um your portfolio is kind of important, but it's not the be all and end all. Um, because a lot of things I guess you're not gonna be able to talk about in the grand scheme of things anyway. So um I wouldn't be putting quite as much emphasis on that. I don't know, it's it this one's more difficult than the previous question, I think, because they clearly want to be able to do some stuff. They have some ambitions. They clearly have some ideas that they want that how they can do um, do the job differently and do the job better. Um, but it just feels either they don't have the the receptive um, team there to naturally say about them, or they're um, nervous about um, putting up new ideas. And my view would be to put. Um, um, just put yourself out there. And it, if you want to change things, recommend it. And the worst thing that can happen is they, they say no. Um, but you, at best, you might realize some of your ambitions. I've just waffled an awful lot around that. <laughs> Nick, what do you think? Have you got something a bit more concise, a bit a bit better advice than what I was just giving? Um, yeah, I also agree that this is too soon to feel a plateau. I mean... To me, this feels like maybe you didn't understand the assignment. UX and research is always about advocating for the importance. And if you're the only person there doing research, then you got to do your job and advocate for it. I don't know. I feel like setting up a research process is is some of the most fun. I mean, I'm a different 
kind of person, but setting up a research process is the most fun thing that I've ever had experience with. I've done it at multiple companies. And um, I think really the, the biggest challenge can be to get people to use that process. And it's like, that is a challenge, but it's also a fun thing for me to do. I really enjoy that aspect of my work. And I, I wonder that if you're not enjoying that aspect of it, uh, is this the right field for you? I don't know. You know, maybe another company can help if they already have an established process that might be a better fit. Um, I don't know. I like, I think to me, that is the most fun part. And if you're having problem with it, then maybe find a different area within UX. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to tell you to quit your job and go look elsewhere, but <laughs> this is, this is, uh, to me, that is the most exciting part of it. And um, I can't really give great advice other than find what you love and kind of stick with it. Anyway, uh, that's not great advice. I've, I'm i on a roll with not great advice tonight, but that's that's it. <laughs> All right. It's time we get into this thing we just call One More Thing. Uh, needs no introduction. Barry, what's your One More Thing this week? So this week is just uh, me talking about my ultimate job interview that I've just finished. Um, which is standing for um, for local government office and having that piece of knocking on hundreds of doors and talking to people and just trying to sell yourself to every single one of them, um, but trying to be your authentic self, but also have to tailor it slightly for what their individual wants and needs are. And you've got about, I don't know, 30 seconds a minute to make an impression hundreds of times over, rather than just a normal sort of interview where you've got maybe a panel of three, maybe a panel of five, um, and you're doing it all day. And I've literally spent the past, you know, 48 hours um, highly focused on this and, and getting this done outside of the work that I've done over the past few months. So, yeah, it, it feels like um, the end of a of a really weird period of time. Um, so the, the, the polls closed now about an hour and a half ago. And but we don't find out tomorrow, so we I get the the results of the job interview tomorrow, and what the what the public at large have thought about me. Um, yeah, it's just really weird. It's it's going to be, and it's very public as well because everybody will know the outcome. So, do your cheeks hurt? Oh, my cheeks hurt, my jaws hurt, my 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 feet hurt, my knees hurt. There's hills around here. I've I've never had hills like it. Um, oh, but what a thoroughly enjoyable thing to do. Um, the ability to go and talk to people in this way, it's like the weirdest, biggest piece of UX research you um, you uh, you ever do. <laughs> um, it's 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 mad. Um, but yeah, no, it's been great. Yeah. My, my one more thing this week uh, is last week I talked about getting my 3D printer out uh, and starting projects. Uh, I'm going to a Star Wars convention next month, this month, this month, it's this month. Wow. Mm -hmm. And, um, I have been working on, uh, my son is going to dress up and I've been working on his helmet. Those who are watching can see oh, the progress cool. here. Isn't yeah. that cool? Yeah. So it's got, it's got some paint on it. Uh, it's, it's still a uh, work in progress, obviously, but it's something I'm very proud of. It looks very good. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that looks great. Well yeah, it's, it's still right in the middle of it. But anyway, that's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode and enjoy some of the discussion about our doomed planet, I'll encourage you to go listen to, you know what? I got a short homework assignment for you this week. It's Climate Ergonomics. It's a Human Factors Minute. It's part of the Team C's effort. So go listen to that. It's only a minute. Uh, comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can join us on our Discord community. Like I said, we got that new career advice section in there for you to throw questions at us. Uh, you can always visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, we do have a merch store. Go and do that. Or you can leave us a five-star review. That's free for you to do. Tell your friends about us or consider supporting us on Patreon. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you so much for being on the show today despite knocking on doors all day. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to break out of this self-destructive cycle? Well, anytime now they can see me in bed for the next two days. Um, no, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Baz underscore K, or come and listen to some of the interviews that I haven't done yet, but will be up soon on 1202, the Human Factors Podcast at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. It depends. 
spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.